Missed the show? No worries. We've got you covered on our podcast. On point tonight, new provincial legislation could prevent COVID-19 legal actions against businesses and long-term care homes. But did the province strike the right balance or does it protect those who don't need protecting? So why would Trudeau want to have an election? Well, not just to make sure all the scandals go away, but because right now he's popular and he wants to keep it that way. And we'll talk to another doctor who's joined a growing opinion that draconian shutdowns are doing far more damage than good. He talks about why we need to learn to live with this thing. Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. A point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. The Liberal government arbitrarily and absurdly chose to make this opposition day motion a confidence vote. Uh, that is clearly because Prime Minister Trudeau and the Liberal government want to find an election. Want to fight an election. And then. So, said said no one ever shocking but yeah the ndp are holding the liberals accountable of course they're doing that by not holding them to account alex pearson with you on what has been a very wild wednesday october 21st and uh, welcome to life in a minority government as we bring to a close a very needless game of political chicken sparked of course by the prime minister who can for now uh, puff up his already puffy chest and avoid scrutiny his government in absolutely no way wants. Because not only does the election fade for now, but the committee proposed to scrutinize his government's pandemic spending also goes away for now, which is exactly what Mr. Trudeau wanted. But of course, this does not mean all committees looking into spending go away, but the committee proposed by the Conservatives in particular does. And it's very clear that the Prime Minister either has something to hide, and if that means, like Mr. O'Toole said today, threatening an election to make sure it goes away, so be it. If the Prime Minister is going to threaten an election in a pandemic, every time an opposition party asks a question on their pandemic planning, on support for small business, on former Liberal MPs and Liberal insiders getting access to hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayer money, He's going to have to get used to the fact that the Conservatives are going to do our job. And we are never going to let the arrogance or entitlement of the Liberal Party to stand in our way of asking reasonable questions that Canadians want us to ask. Yeah, questions are hard, you know. But if we allow governing parties to pull the plug every time the going gets tough, uh, what kind of parliament do we have? I mean, what country, what kind of country do we have? Because it's very clear the NDP don't care. They talk sure, they talk a good game and then they fold like cheap soup. And the liberals are trying to hide spending they don't want us to see. Be it we or many other questionable things they've pulled with COVID spending. And there are quite a few examples, and I've talked about them on this show for a while. I mean, they don't want to answer how former Liberal MP Frank Bayless got $237 million to build ventilators Health Canada hasn't approved. They don't want to talk about why Catherine McKenna can't account for $57.5 billion in infrastructure spending that neither she, auditors, or the parliamentary budget officer can't find. I mean, should those not get scrutiny from the opposition? 
I mean, as far as Trudeau's concerned, it shouldn't. And so I guess threatening an election over a committee is the trick they're going to use. Creating a committee has never in our history been grounds for a confidence vote. It's Mr. Trudeau that is making it a confidence vote because Mr. Trudeau would prefer to try and go to an election rather than ask questions about insider spending scandals, rather than tell Canadians that he has no plan for the economic relaunch of our country. I mean, it's not exactly a stretch that the Trudeau government is playing fast and loose with the rules. I mean, you need only look back um, to their track record, whether it's uh, toying with the rule of law in SNC to help a company get out of bribery charges, you know, firing the woman who stood up against that, or charging and trying to jail Vice Admiral Mark Norman over a leak about a naval contract, or his multiple ethical breaches, including the one for a secret trip with the Aga Khan. I mean, yes... We gets most of the attention, but there's a very long track record of this prime minister bending the rules to help his friends in high places. And so no one should be surprised that they'd, you know, turn a committee into a threat of a vote of confidence and, well, might do it again, which, according to the House leader this afternoon, was just all a bunch of crazy talk. That's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. If somebody said that. This is a serious matter. What they propose here is extremely serious. They go over the limits. I mean, it's, it's irresponsible. And it was about paralyzing the government in the middle of a pandemic when we need to be there working for Kenyans. Right. What is ridiculous is that your government turned a motion for a committee to scrutinize spending, which is their job, into a vote of confidence. What is also ridiculous is that this government is trying to claim that they can't run the government and have committee meetings on the side. Like they can't chew gum and walk at the same time. I mean, that's what's ridiculous. And it's an insult to our intelligence. And tomorrow, Michelle Rempel-Garner is going to table a motion in the House because, of course, it's been blocked by liberals at committee. So she's going to push for a study on how we got caught so flat-footed by this pandemic, and if we're ready for the second wave. And it's going to threaten some very inconvenient truths about the Trudeau government. That also going to become a confidence vote? You know, sure, they're going to spin this as the opposition playing politics because they're focusing on Canadians, but that doesn't fly. I'm sorry. It was Justin Trudeau who prorogued Parliament for five weeks to bury a scandal. This has never been about Canadians. It is about Trudeau's constant grab for power. And you wonder, you know, those losing their mind over Donald Trump's alleged corruption or anything he does, why are they so quick to wave it all away when it comes to Justin Trudeau? Why? Bad behavior is bad behavior. I don't care your politics. And he's a crass, very calculated politician who somehow smiles his way out of a pattern of bad behavior. And if he can simply manipulate Parliament and turn everything into a confidence vote because he doesn't want the opposition scrutinizing possible law-breaking, or because somehow those holding the highest office feel they're beyond reproach, then what does that tell you about our democracy or any kind of functioning Parliament? The reality is Justin Trudeau doesn't like sharing power, 
and he couldn't get it through a power grab at the beginning of the pandemic in March. You remember that little stunt? And he couldn't erase scandals involving we proroguing parliament. So he's creating yet another controversy that wasn't one at all to take us to the polls. And why not? I mean, great time for him to hold an election. He's, you know, sitting in the numbers, which if they held would give him a majority status. He's popular because he's seen as everyone's piggy bank. He's the guy that's got our backs. And the last thing he wants right now is scrutiny that would actually expose his government's many failures of actually not being prepared at all for this virus. Because remember, it was low risk and we were prepared, don't you know? And as for the NDP, what are they getting out of this? I mean, they claim to be negotiating with the Trudeau government all night long, and all they got was a sign that says, kick me, I'm with stupid. Like, what do you stand for, NDP? Here you are talking tough, and, you know, you listen to Charlie Angus, and he talks the talk, but then you got Jagmeet Singh, who's like, yeah, we're going to hold them to account by not holding them to account. You're either in or out, but you can't suck and blow, and that's all we're getting. So will this new legislation by the Ford government stop long-term homes from being sued over COVID-19 related lawsuits? It's a bit of a yes and a bit of a no. Attorney General Doug Downey tabled the Supporting Ontario's Recovery Act, which would introduce a new test for Ontario judges when they're considering allowing a COVID-19 civil suit to go ahead. Or not, it is an honest effort or if it's trying to take advantage of it. And on the surface, it sounds like the Ford government's protecting long-term homes from all suits, which right now there are several in front of the courts, but you read the fine print, and when he was asked about it today, what it sounds like to me, and I could be uh, corrected on this, is that they want to prevent anyone and everyone from filing frivolous COVID suits should their loved one die while in the care of long-term care. Let us bring in someone, well, we've spoken to her certainly before on the show, Kathy Parks, and her lawyer, Melissa Miller, who's a partner at Howie Sachs and Henry. They both join us now. Hi there. Hi. Hi. So, Kathy, um, I reached out to you because obviously you have a class action suit pending, which is against Orchard Villa long-term care because your father, Paul, was living there and in the spring... He died of COVID. How concerned are you about this particular piece of legislation? It doesn't sound like it would affect your particular matter. Yeah, ours is actually a mass tort, not a class action. Um, so I think that it'll it'll absolutely affect ours, and Melissa can speak to this as well, in that it'll just drag it out that much longer. Um, having to show uh, gross negligence is going to make everyone's cases more difficult. Okay, Melissa, fill in the blanks here. In this legislation, how how should we be reading it? Because I think everyone looks at it as, okay, you can't now sue long-term care. But when I was reading it, that's not my interpretation. My interpretation is um, that they don't want yet anybody and everybody who has died within long-term care to be able to file a specific COVID suit. It, it would have to be, um, you know, the, the, there had to be, would have to be discretion there for, for the judge. Yeah, so I think um, interpreting the legislation and the intention behind it are two different things. If the intention behind it is to avoid frivolous lawsuits, our system already has measures in place, and legislation like this is completely unnecessary. Plaintiffs are already required to establish uh, the standard of care that they allege was breached in any given case. 
So a nursing home is no person in law or no institution in law is required to uh, adhere to a standard of perfection. The standard is reasonableness, reasonableness in the circumstances. And the circumstances that we're in are obviously in a global pandemic. Uh, And the judge would take that into account in any of the lawsuits that are out there right now. What this legislation does is it provides a lot of circular reasoning and ambiguity about subjective good faith, honest effort. The the definition of good faith effort is an honest effort, whether that effort was reasonable or not. I can't think of more subjective language or more circular reasoning uh, when looking at a piece of legislation. And so what we're left with is a standard of gross negligence, which is an onerous, and I say unduly onerous burden to place on plaintiffs who already have the burden of proof in a lawsuit. Right. And your father, Paul, uh, passed, uh, Kathy, and the conditions, according to your allegations, um, you know, it could have been avoided. It should have been avoided. And it was a failure of the home to protect him uh, and others from, from this virus. Yes. I mean, uh, specifically in my case, you know, I had been asking for my father to go to the hospital. I had been asking for information. I was given false information, told that he was sitting up and eating when I had just seen him uh, in a comatose state. Um, I was told by the frontline staff there that he wasn't doing well, that he was feverish, but hadn't been tested for COVID. So there were a lot of things with my father's uh, situation that do prove negligence, absolutely. Um, But I'm worried that, you know, there are other people out there who won't have as much proof and are in the same position as I am, and they will fall through the cracks on this. And it's just not right. Now, the Premier said today that certainly if um, a long-term care home has been negligent or certainly reckless, that that there's no reason why they shouldn't be sued. But when you look at the legislation, uh, there are sections where the provincial government, municipalities, public health officials, politicians, they would generally be shielded from such litigation, Melissa. Yeah, I mean, the, our government, our provincial government is already quite shielded from litigation. There was, uh, a, our, this government passed a law to amend legislation uh, last year, in fact, to shield uh, the provincial government further from lawsuits, which is a whole other separate issue. But to Kathy's point, um, Kathy has a lot of evidence in her case, and many mm-hmm. of the Orchard Villa families do. And what this does, is, if the intention is to protect small businesses and mom and pop shops out there. Um, that's fine. That's inconsistent. And it makes sense with Premier Ford's comments today that, you know, negligent homes will be held accountable. But that's not the way the legislation reads. The legis- if, if, if homes are to be held accountable for negligent behavior, no legislation is required because that's already our law. So enacting legislation that invites a higher standard is not the same thing as holding negligent homes responsible. It's so how, holding... how then does this need to be reworded or is it just not necessary in your mind? I mean, I think it's not necessary at all because I think once you take out the problematic language, um, you know, it, it, it sort of loses its steam. Um, but it, it, if the legislation is to remain, then the definition of good faith effort needs to be reworked entirely. Long-term care homes should be excluded from this legislation because if the purpose is to 
protect grocery stores and mm-hmm. hockey arenas and small businesses, then long-term care homes um, and retirement homes should be an exclusion within the legislation. There's and is no that, need. Is that, is that possible that that can be, is this something that can be fought for to get them uh, taken out? Because I understand it, it does make sense to have businesses in there. I mean, uh, people shouldn't be able to go into a business and if they do get sick after they've left, they shouldn't just be able to go and sue a business, um, you know, because those things can get very much out of control. But is there a way that this can, um, you know, be exclusionary of long-term care homes? I think so. Uh, You know, the the legislation has been tabled at this point. It still hasn't gone through a second reading, although I think that it'll pass, uh, you know, pretty easily there. Mm -hmm. But there's an opportunity for it to go to committee thereafter. Um, You know, there's still an opportunity uh, for the AG to, you know, fix some of the language if if they think appropriate. And I would hope that uh, there is an invitation for stakeholders to make submissions on this legislation because there was no invitation. Right. I sit on the board of the Ontario Trial Lawyers Association, and we were not consulted with this legislation. Well, it's certainly worth the discussion because this is being uh, is going through the process now, and certainly if it needs to be tweaked, it should be tweaked because on first blush, uh, it reads one way, but not, you know, it's one of those things you have to read the fine print of these. But Kathy, this is a fight you took on, and we spoke about this when your father passed. You took this case uh, and took this issue forward at a very, very um, you know, devastating time in your life, but you you seem like you're pretty convinced that that this is a fight you want to take on, and even if it's not just for yourself. Yes, and this this was never, even in the moment when things were so fresh, this was never about um, lashing out in anger. It was about seeking accountability, and it's still that today. And that's why I'm absolutely determined to push forward. I'm thankful Melissa is determined Mm -hmm. to push push forward, and um, we'll just have to see how it goes. Well, we'll wait and see and continue to follow this and see uh, if anything is, in in fact, changed. But I do uh, appreciate your insight into this and certainly your clarification, uh, Melissa, on some of the red flags it it does raise. I appreciate both you giving us your time. Thank Thank you. you. There's Kathy Parks and Melissa Miller. This is a piece of legislation that is, in fact, working its way through um, Parliament or or the uh, Queen's Park right now. And so uh, we'll keep an eye on it. But again, businesses and long-term care, I don't think should be in the same category. They're different, very different. So we'll see if they do manage to bring in some quick changes to this. I think Justin Trudeau should have actually been given the election he wanted. You know, if he believes in his conviction that a committee is a vote of confidence, then I say, put the talk into walk. And he and his fellow MPs are going to continue telling us, oh, we don't want an election. We didn't want an election. Well, the reality is they likely do. You know, you're watching all these provincial premiers heading to the polls, riding in their popularity and winning. And Trudeau himself is riding high in the polls. And so really, would it have been so bad for the opposition to call his bluff and then allow Mr. Trudeau to say, well, the opposition did this and take their chances? There's lots of politics in politics. Daryl Bricker joining us now, CEO of Ipsos Polling. Do I have that kind of right? Ipsos Public Affairs, but Ipsos Polling is what we do. Sorry, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Um, So, you know, the bottom line is, right now, if you looked at the polls, uh, and I don't know what your polls are are telling you, but um, a lot of polls are saying that uh, Mr. Trudeau is riding very high in the polls right now, and it would be probably an opportune moment for him to go. Maybe not politically correct, but opportunic. 
Uh, you know, uh, I would want a few more before I started saying there was some sort of a trend. I mean, we've shown him a couple of points ahead. There's been a couple of polls that have been out this week that I, I find suspiciously low on the NDP in terms of their numbers, and they're showing the levels a little bit further ahead than we are. But uh, even if you put the average of all of those polls together, they haven't got a huge lead. But then again, they had no lead going into the last election campaign either. And, uh, and uh, well, I guess it was scheduled, so we had to have it. But uh, they found a way to win that one. Yes, they did. <laughs> with three blackface, um, you know, uh, bombshells right in the middle of it. But, you know, the one thing about polling is that it can change very, very quickly. And, and that's why I tend to only believe a couple of different pollsters. You happen to be the one I, I tend to, to look at most because not all polling is created equal. And so when you see a party kind of 10 points ahead where all the other polls are not showing that, then, t- you know, chances are it's not correct. But polling numbers can change very, very quickly. So an eight-point lead can drop very quickly. Yeah, and the, the thing about the um, uh, what, what's, what we're seeing in the polling right now is even though uh, they've uh, opened up a little uh, sunlight between themselves and their main opposition party, the, 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 the uh, Conservative Party, when you go and you look at things like government satisfaction, whether you think mm-hmm. the country's on the right track or wrong track, uh, whether or not you're in a good mood or a bad mood, there's a, a lot of those factors are really not very good right now. So they tend to be the things that uh, that in the end pull vote in a certain direction. So even if the prime minister was looking over the lake and saw, you know, there was a sort of a, a nice free skate to the other side, it's pretty thin ice. It is. um, But nonetheless, uh, you know, it may have been something that they were willing to do. But you can, as an elected uh, official, as as a government, be penalized and penalized harshly. Like the opposition may have taken the first couple of hits by the electorate, but it can turn very quickly on on the leader himself, Mr. Trudeau, no matter how popular he is with his base. um, If you take people into an election when you've got this much um, uncertainty when you've got a pandemic we're all told is very dangerous uh, you know people that tends to really piss people off well a technical term absolutely <laughs> uh, but but the uh, but the, the the thing when you, when you mentioned the liberal base the liberal base is actually quite small uh, compared to the conservative base which is actually large Conservative base is large, but it has not a very uh, um, uh, big ceiling. In other words, it doesn't have a lot of room to grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the, the Liberal Party tends to consolidate the progressive vote, which is the NDP and the, and the, uh, the Green Party, um, around their progressive coalition. But their actual base of what you would call Liberal voters uh, are fairly promiscuous. They tend to move around. Now, they've stuck together since 2015. But we, uh, we even saw in the 2019 election, they lost the popular vote. So yeah. when I say it's thin ice, it actually is thin ice. And um, depending on how we go into the election and depending on how the leaders perform and depending on, you know, the issues that emerge during a campaign, which are uh, sometimes, as we saw in the last election campaign, uh, uh, very difficult to control and potentially destructive and volatile, uh, mm-hmm. going into any election campaign is risky. So I honestly, when I was looking at the numbers and watching what they were trying to uh, to do today, I was really wondering what they saw because I didn't see it. Yeah, and again, um, you know, there's a lot of politics to to politics, I guess. And and the reality for the prime minister is, and correct me where I'm wrong, is that you know it's 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 easy, let's say, in the first wave to gain popularity. We've seen it with uh, Doug Ford as well. When you're seen as 
you know, we've got your back. Certainly for Mr. Trudeau, he was seen out there every morning saying, here's your money, more money, more money. It's when the fatigue sets in, when um, the actual destruction of the policy or decisions that the government makes, when you start seeing people lose jobs and when they start to lose hope, that is when, um, you know, the policy is further attacked and more scrutiny will be put on the government, not just over their spending, but how we got here to begin with. And that can be very, and I think it should be very damaging to the Trudeau government. Well, particularly when you get into an election campaign and you discover that the other guys get covered as well as you get covered. So right now, the only coverage that's uh, that's really happening is around the government itself. Right. So, you know, whether they score a goal or whether they make an error, it's, it tends to be hyper-exaggerated because it's all about them right now. There's really no coverage on the opposition, mm-hmm. um, except, you know, we even saw, even in, in, in Global's own polling, you know, when the Conservatives were holding their uh, their leadership campaign, half the public didn't even know they were having one. Yeah. So, I mean, so it's really all focused on the government, good or ill. Uh, and so when you get into an election campaign, when things start to even out in terms of the coverage and the criticism of the government starts to ramp up, that's when it can, you know, all of a sudden you're really into a fight. And the question is whether or not these guys um, are, are ready for that kind of fight in this current environment, in this kind of mood. They seem to feel that they are, which is why they're doing everything that, that they are that, that they are doing. Uh, also, they, they, you can tell that the NDP, for example, is afraid to go to the public. Um, must be because they, they, they rolled over today for absolutely mm-hmm. nothing. nothing. They got nothing mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. So they obviously don't want to have an election campaign. So the, the government can actually push quite hard and make a lot of progress on what they want to do uh, because they know that they've always got a dance partner. So I never actually thought it was serious that they're gonna, we, we were going to end up in an election campaign today. I, I thought if we were going to end up in one, it would probably be an accident. Yeah, well, yeah, that, and there you go. Like maybe that they would. I thought at one point maybe the NDP would abstain vote and then maybe leave it up to the uh, to the independents and the Green to decide. But you know, when you speak of of Jagmeet Singh, you know they come out tough talking and they they say all the right things. But when it comes to actual decision time or standing up for, you know, they say that they're going to hold the government to account, and then they just don't hold the government to account. They can only do that so many times before they lose all credibility. And frankly, um, you know. It, people might like Jagmeet Singh, but he certainly doesn't have the conviction of uh, the late Jack Layton. And I think, and again, I think that they risk losing any support they have to maybe the green, um, you know, or possibly to the liberal where people will say that, who are they? They they don't stand for anything. So I might as well try either something new or stick with the liberals. Well, you know, the the NDP went through an interesting transition uh, from the 1980s into the, uh, into the, uh, the aughts. And that's when they moved away from being, we're just, you know, interested in being the conscience of parliament, like under Ed Broadbent. Uh, and you got Jack Layton as leader. And he actually saw that there was a possibility that they could unite the progressive vote in Canada, that the anachronism was the Liberal Party. They were going to fill in the center left and they were going to become the next government of the country. So he was as interested in knocking the Liberal Party off as, uh, as Stephen Harper was and did not fear them. Mm-hmm. and believed he had a better message and believed he had, could run a better campaign and believed he could defeat them. And in fact, ended up being the official opposition in one of those election campaigns. And they were poised in, uh, in 2015 to potentially become actually the government of uh, the country other than uh, uh, Thomas Mulcair run a, ran a fairly uh, uh, poor campaign. But um, they've now moved back into that other position, which is we're just kind of the gadfly hanging around the, the House of Commons. We're the number four party, and we think we're the conscience and you know yeah. the power brokers. But if you're afraid to go to the people, that says everything. Right. We're number four. 
we're, we're number, number four. four. They, they actually celebrate it. And it's like, no, you didn't win. But then you, you, you speak about Aaron O'Toole and people say, well, I don't know him, but I actually think he's a bigger problem for Mr. Trudeau because he's not Andrew Scheer. He's quite smart. He has a lot more conviction than Shear, and he's dodged a lot of the wedge issues that have been thrown at him already. He's a, And he actually speaks much better French. And so I think this proves a problem the longer he is seen out there uh, in question period, the more he is uh, known and certainly is known better in Ontario than Andrew Shear was because he's been in this area for a long time. Uh, he becomes a bigger threat. Well, the biggest problem, and that's, those are all good points, uh, but I'll just add one more to this. Uh, the biggest problem that Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party has right now is the province of Ontario. Yeah. And last time around, Doug Ford was at the start of his mandate and was doing a lot of really unpopular things as he was sorting out what it was to be the premier of the province. And the government and the progressive conservative party, party was figuring out how to be the government. Uh, they were breaking a lot of crockery and they were causing a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've gone into the COVID situation and have performed and we can argue about whether they've done everything right or wrong, but in terms of public opinion and what the public yeah. thinks, they've done a pretty good job. In the last election campaign, the number one asset that uh, Justin Trudeau had in that campaign was not himself and his own party. It was using Doug Ford to paint Andrew Scheer. He doesn't right. have that this time yeah. against Aaron O'Toole. So I'm wondering how he would campaign in the province of Ontario because last time his message didn't work other than he said that he wasn't Doug Ford and Andrew Scheer was. So what's he going to do in this in this campaign when he doesn't have that obvious foil and, and Aaron O'Toole isn't, uh, isn't as easy to take on as Andrew Scheer was? And remember, all Scheer has to do is win 20 seats, 25 seats in the yeah. province in, in, uh, in the 905, split the 905, and he's the prime minister. That's it. It's over. Yeah. Yeah, well, it should be interesting, but uh, if we get a confidence vote every time something is put forward, we're going to be having a lot of these conversations. Uh, Daryl keeps rolling over. That's exactly what will happen. Scratch their belly because, you know, they're doing a lot of that. (laughs) All right, uh, Daryl, I appreciate your time on this. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Alex. Uh, That is Mr. Daryl Bricker, and he is. There aren't a lot of pollsters that I buy. He's one of them. More reliable than I'd say any of the others, and that's why we use him. So what was accepted as a norm in the first wave of shutting things down completely has now become a a growing divide in the medical community with more and more doctors actually saying that these draconian shutdowns are doing more harm than good. And we should actually be responding to this health crisis by learning to live with the virus, especially when we know that medical experts are starting to understand more and more about this virus than they did before. Not to mention, with case numbers high, the ICU and the hospitalizations are much, much lower than what we saw in the spring. So they're not threatening to overwhelm hospitals. So why are those in charge, you know, using an anvil approach to crush every case when maybe they should actually be using a lighter approach and targeting the actual problem areas and letting us learn to live with this virus. Dr. Robert Sargent is head of internal medicine at St. Mike's Hospital. He joins us now. Good to have you, doctor. Thank you for having me. And as the uh, head of internal medicine at St. Mike's, I mean, you have been leading the COVID-19 response. Um, and initially, as I understand, you, you, like most doctors, agreed with the shutdowns, but that's changed for you now. I think that's fair to say. We certainly did agree with the measures that were taken, uh, we, it was an unknown at that time, and things looked very, very frightening based on the experiences that we saw coming out of Wuhan and out of Italy and the UK and other places. And we had to be 
smart and prudent and do everything we could to protect our healthcare system and to so-called flatten the curve, which I think we were successful in doing. And so you look at this, you know, as uh, it seems that the officials want to stamp the whole thing out now and just get rid of it. Have they have do you believe that the experts that are managing and advising all levels of government, do you feel like they might have a bit of tunnel vision that they're being blocked by, um, which might be that they should be taking a different approach to, to dealing with this virus? Well, I do think that this approach has kind of become dogma to a certain degree and um, has become the narrative and is proving to be um, very difficult to steer in another direction. I think in fairness that I, I don't know of too many people now that really truly believe that we can stamp this out. Even those that were proposing that weeks and months ago have come to the realization that that's simply not feasible or practical. But mm-hmm. I do think that there is a view that this remains a deadly virus, which in some circles it certainly is, and that we need to adopt similar approaches that we did in the first wave in order to mitigate its spread and to prevent it from putting undue pressure on our healthcare system without looking, as you said in your preamble, at what has changed in terms of our approach from a medical perspective and also the differences in the spread of the virus through a very different demographic this time around. I mean, the reality is our healthcare system is burdened all the time, and I wish the uh, experts and those in charge cared about that to fix that before all this happens. So, they've all, our healthcare has always been very, very stressed, um, and that's why we wait for sometimes years on end to get treatments, et cetera. But you know, do you agree with the you know twenty eight shutdown of complete sectors that are basically saying, look, we will not survive this, which in itself has other health side effects and, and does real damage? Um, you know, I, I, I disagree with kind of blanket shutdowns. I still think that there's a role for targeting potentially um, rapid spread areas. I'm, I'm not out there advocating for, um, you know, large mass gatherings for us to open up stadiums mm-hmm. uh, and that type of thing. But I, I do think that even our populace has learned a lot about how to protect themselves and each other. And so for people enjoying a meal in a restaurant where all the staff in that restaurant are taking precautions, in my mind, is completely safe. Having kids play minor hockey or return to swimming and diving lessons, mm-hmm. um, playing kids playing basketball, all of our kids going back to school now, I think that there's lots and lots of precedent around the world that this is now safe to do and that we can lighten things up. Um, Our our focus really needs to be on those that are the most vulnerable. We still do need to ring fence those um, facilities in which which house the frail elderly and those with medical conditions to protect them as best we can. But I think that's maybe a separate discussion from saying we have to lock down everything all the time everywhere. Right, because there are long-term care is still, you know, that iron ring that they promised still doesn't seem to be there. Um, and homeless shelters are a real problem to the point where we have tents now appearing all over uh, downtowns and cities across the province where people don't feel safe to stay in a shelter. And I'm not sure over the past six or seven months how those in charge weren't able to really kind of focus in and make sure those places were safe. Yeah, I mean, a lot of work, I could say from direct personal experience that a lot of work has taken place to, to develop isolation sites and protected places for homeless individuals to be to go um, to be safely um, quarantined and isolated. And some of those are online and remain online. And 
being a physician at Inner City Hospital at St. Michael's, you know, yeah. I directly saw and benefited from a lot of massive amount of work that people did to set those up. Um, but you're right. Um, the homeless issue remains um, a bit of a crisis as it did before this pandemic. You know, pan- pandemics, what they do is they, they, they find our weak spots and they exploit them mercilessly. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's the, the long-term care of frail elderly patients with cognitive issues, whether that's our homeless situation, whether that's communities that have more kind of working poor people in them, you know, they, th- those problems were identified as being issues and social determinants of health well before this pandemic came along. All, all COVID did was just pick that, that wound and just turn the screws. And, and so now you're right, we're, we're, we're back to having to think about a strategy going forward to fill those gaps in real time, but then to think about how we can mitigate those problems in a substantive, lasting way. But this has, you know, caused quite a divide in the medical community. And trust me, I get the blowback both on both sides. You know, um, you know, there are either the lockdowns or those who say, I'm not wearing a mask, leave me alone. So it's a very polarizing issue. And the issue of COVID is not just a health issue. It is a political issue um, at this point. Do you find that more and more uh, of those in um, health are, are starting to see this virus differently now because we have learned so much? Well, I think those of us that have thought that, you know, blanket restrictions um, were not the way to go felt a little intimidated um, outside of maybe the common discourse. And, you know, I, 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 I don't pick fights. I, I, don't, I don't look to, to have arguments. Um, I was busy enough and I am busy enough doing my day job. But, you know, in, in time, we kind of found each other through WhatsApp groups and through shared letters to government officials. And, and that, that group has grown. It's found its voice. And we found good and compelling evidence to support our position, which we share frequently. And, and I think also there's been a little bit of a sea change, not just within medicine and the scientific community, but also within society itself. Now, I, I'm a big, big believer in kind of herd intelligence. And mm-hmm. you, know, you, you can tell people what you want all the time, but they're going to look around them and they're going to have their lived experience. And they're going to look at the same numbers that we look at on various websites and they're going to figure it out for themselves where it's dangerous and where it's not and what's working and what isn't and so i think it's a little bit of a collective realization as well that you know maybe the the flop sweat panic that we were in wasn't entirely justified and that there is another path forward um, that does involve as you say learning to come to grips and live with this virus Well, we're going to have to because the vaccine that we are all promised may not be coming for a very long time. And it's certain that uh, even if, uh, you know, this is around for another couple of years, I just don't think society at large can live this way for long without having drastic, drastic, um, you know, problems on the other side. So I appreciate you coming on and explaining your side. It's certainly a conversation that is starting, and I'm glad to see the uh, narrative at least is starting to get some traction. Doctor, I know you're busy because I know you've been working seven days a week for six months, so I do appreciate your uh, time. Uh, That might be a little bit hyperbole there, but I have been working hard, (laughs) yes. Yeah, I don't doubt it. Thank you to you, and uh, stay safe. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much.
That is Dr. Robert Sargent joining us. Uh, he is with uh, Internal Medicine over at St. Mike's. Uh, and look, they're dealing with it. They got an outbreak. They've got to deal with it every day. So if they can learn to deal with it and they're saying, hey, we've got to learn to deal with it, maybe we should start having the conversation of learning to live with this thing. All right. Thanks for listening. Of course, you can listen live Monday through Friday, 630 to 10, Monday through Friday. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.